Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics at the Cavendish Lab at the University of Cambridge. Hi, I'm Simone Isagere Barker, a PhD student in experimental physics here at the Cavendish. And I'm Jacob Butler. I work in the outreach office here at the Cavendish, helping to demystify physics for school students. This month, our guest is Tom Sharp, group technician for the Optoelectronics Research Group here at the Department of Physics, where his day-to-day involves working closely with scientists to maintain and troubleshoot equipment and ensure a smooth running of the laboratories and facilities. Tom was always drawn to mechanical work growing up and joined the Cavendish through an apprenticeship 10 years ago. In that time, his role has changed, evolving from working in the mechanical workshop to now being in charge of producing and maintaining a whole group's equipment. As someone who has to solve problems on a daily basis, Tom works with the mindset that you can't get brought down with failures. Sometimes your first solution won't work as you hoped, but it's all about learning, improving, and adapting to new situations and challenges. But how does one learn to work in such a fast-paced and unpredictable environment? And what's it like to work so closely with researchers and play a crucial part in setting up the experiments that lead to groundbreaking discoveries? Stay tuned as we ask Tom all about this and more. Well, welcome, Tom. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, your work is a little bit behind the scenes, the sort of thing that people might not immediately associate with the physics lab. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you uh, get up to here? Yeah, so thank you for having me on. Um, I am a group technician for optoelectronics now. Um, so basically, when the researchers either need something or break something, <laughs> I'm the guy what they come to and get whatever it is what they want done. Lovely. And I imagine there's some very fairly uh, fancy bits of kit that these uh, these scientists play around with, so it's not just sort of tinkering with fuses or anything like that. Um, so a lot of their work is in glove boxes or on optical tables and that sort of thing. So glove boxes, as you can imagine, go wrong quite a lot. Um, <laughs> a lot of the stuff what goes wrong with glove boxes is generally the pump, mm. uh, the vacuum pump. So I've been uh, doing quite a lot of work, work with them and getting quite good at repairing them swiftly so they can get back to work. <laughs> Um, the optical tables and that, um, a lot of stuff for them is making weird and wonderful mounts so they can hold their mirrors in certain positions and that sort of thing to do uh, laser experiments. Um, and then a lot of the other stuff what I do is sample holders. Okay. Um, I think one of the most memorable ones was a sample holder for a silicon wafer. Um, but it was very small and sort of delicate. And I think I was spending roughly a month to make this sample holder um, the researcher took it away done one experiment with it it worked and that was that <laughs> so a month work was sort of used up within two days sort of thing okay but i mean do you know what happens with the results of that experiment or is it uh, is it just sort of out of your hands and then you, uh, and you um, so the science behind it is out of my hands um obviously whatever results that researcher got for that particular one um that would go into their thesis and that sort of thing they're right about that but the science behind it, I'll try to stay a little bit out of, <laughs> just because there's a reason why they're here doing their PhDs and I'm here doing the sort of mechanical side of it. Um, the science, what you guys are doing is way above my head sort of thing. Um, so I try to understand the basics as much as possible um, so that together we can work and um, create the best possible solution for what they want. Um, obviously, if I was spending a lot of time learning research behind it, um, the job probably wouldn't get done. 
And I suppose you know it's worked if they don't come back for another one or for it to be uh, tweaked with slightly. Um, so that's where it slightly differs in that I first started here um, 10 years ago in the workshops. Um, and that's how we worked in there was no news was good news. Um, <laughs> now that I work directly for a group, quite a lot of the time when you've made something, they'll come back to you and say, oh, what you've done was brilliant. This worked and I sort of got the results what I needed. Um, so it's quite nice in that respect that working for a group, you get a lot more sort of um, respect and gratitude. Um, whereas in the workshops, you sort of get given a drawing, um, you make it, and then you don't know what's doing, where it's going, um, or if it's even worked. You just assume that if it hasn't come back again, then they've got what they wanted. <laughs> so it's a bit more of a partnership now as opposed to a sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, a lot more of a team. Um, like I said, they're very good at what they do. I'm very good at what I do. But together we make a excellent team um, and we can get things done what obviously other places can't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean you said that you think that what the researchers do goes over your head but I'm sure that what you do also would go over their head right? There's yeah. a reason why yeah, <laughs> everyone say, has their different roles that they're doing. Yeah so like I said together it makes a brilliant team in that we can both do things what each other can't mm -hmm. um, and it's very very rare that you can get someone what can do everything all at once. Yeah. Um, so yeah having a team like that where you've got your researchers and you've got your technicians, it works very, very well. Mm -hmm. And now we've kind of covered what you do now. Um, let's delve into the journey of kind of how you got here. So as a child, you said that you were very drawn to tools and tinkering. What was it that encouraged you to pursue kind of engineering? Um, so growing up, I found out that I've got dyslexia, um, literacy dyslexia. So doing anything with paper can get quite tiresome at times because sort of the words are moving about and that sort of thing. Um, so I always knew I wanted to do something hands-on. Um, growing up, I've had a lot of role models. Like my dad's a civil engineer. Um, my mum's a administrator for a engineering company in Littleport, and I had a Saturday job there from the age of thirteen. Um, which in the summertime was cutting grass. In the wintertime, I'd go into workshops and sort of sweep up. But the people there would sort of take me under the wing, bring me over, and show me what they was doing. Um, so that gave me that sort of aspect of no one wanted to do something um, in the engineering background mm -hmm. um, and then going to college and that sort of thing just showed me like that path was really good for me. Lovely, so uh, in our previous discussion you said you started working at the Cavendish as an apprentice and uh, you were encouraged by your grandfather who was working here himself. Uh, what was it like working in a place that you'd heard so many stories about? Um, strangely odd because obviously <laughs> coming in I've heard so many stories about different people um, and then actually meeting them people and working with them was very very strange um, a lot of them people what my grand had worked with and I had the opportunity to work with in the first few years of my apprenticeship they've all left now as well mm -hmm. um, but yeah coming in and sort of putting names to faces and that sort of thing was very strange um, but also very enjoyable and made it a lot more relaxing rather than coming in and all of a sudden you've got a lot of new faces and <laughs> mm -hmm. you don't quite know personalities and sort of get hit with that. It's quite nice to come into a situation where you sort of knew roughly people's backgrounds um, and then occasionally my granddad would bring me in before I started working here um, if he had to come and pick something up quickly on a weekend or something like that. So coming into a place where I'd been with my granddad yeah. was also quite odd because <laughs> you sort of half expect to see him pop around the corner but he's he'd left by then so yeah 
Is there anything that drew you to a physics department over other sorts of engineering work, or is it uh, was it just that sort of family connection? Um, so there wasn't really anything what drew me to physics in particular. It was the opportunity come up, um, which my granddad had noticed. Um, the opportunity come up and seeing that and then hearing the stories, I sort of thought I'll uh, apply for it and see what happens. And I was lucky enough to get the job, and from there. Obviously, worked out very well for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, hearing the stories of how my granddad was explaining the work here, especially because he was a group technician, he used to work for SP. Oh yeah. Um, so hearing the stories of how he worked as a technician really got me intrigued because I've done a little bit of work outside in industry, um, and it's a complete different lifestyle. Like you went in there and they had individual bays for each worker. You went in there. And that was it until tea break. Um, they drop off the material outside your door, so there's no real reason <laughs> to go out and socialise. Whereas hearing the stories of how my granddad was working here, and you not only get the work aspect of it, but you also get a social life here. Um, you know, tea breaks, everyone would meet up, and you'd sort of chinwag and bounce ideas of each other, and you'd get good results from that. And you'd also figure out sometimes that your idea wasn't the best, and <laughs> you'd sort of find a different way to do things. So. Yeah, it was really nice to be able to hear the stories of that and then actually come and experience it as well. Was it just as you expected? Um, I'd say slightly better in ways. <laughs> um, purely because, like I said, I've had that little little, little bit of experience out in industry. Um, and then coming here and having that sort of more relaxed and more social work style, um, yeah, it was just a lot nicer. And so when you started here as an apprentice, you were working in the workshop. So could you tell us a bit about what it's like to work in the workshop? I and mean, I know you've mentioned it, but kind of so people understand the kind of role that it involves. Um, yeah, so as an apprentice, um, you spend your first year in the student workshop. Um, and you're just doing little odd jobs and they have a slight program so you can go through and make things and learn machines. Um, and then when you get into the main workshop, it's a lot different to working as a group technician in that you do small bits of design work, but a lot of the times the researchers have already designed what they wanted. Um, so quite often you get given a drawing, um, not knowing what it is or where it's going, who it's for sort of thing. Um, you make the part and then you send it off and then you don't really get any um, feedback from that. Um, but working in workshops, so obviously very important in that they're the sort of quite big project jobs. Um, a lot of them need CNC work, which as a group technician, you don't do quite as much of. You do what a lot is CNC work? Um, computer numerically controlled. Okay. So it's designed on um, Autodesk Inventor. And then from that, you can write a program, put it into a machine. The machine basically does it for you. Mm. Um, but that does it. A lot quicker and a lot more accurate than what you can do manually. Mm -hmm. um, as, as I was saying, as a tech group technician, you don't really need to do that. Um, a technician role is different in that you're putting things together, what sometimes already made, but they're not meant to go together. <laughs> so you're having to modify things to actually work rather than um, creating something from scratch. Mm -hmm. So it's quite good to see the two different ways of working. 
Lovely. Well, I think we're going to break briefly for a news story and uh, we'll uh, be back here with Tom in a couple of minutes' time. As you know, we usually take a break from the interview to tell you about the most exciting physics news of the month coming out of the Cavendish. This month, however, we want to do things a bit differently and go back in time. We want you to meet June Monica Lindsay, née Broomhead, the woman who contributed to the discovery of DNA's double helix. For most of you, this name won't ring any bells, because sadly, June's huge contributions to modern science have largely been forgotten. Indeed. So we're looking at a black and white photo of scientists working at the Cavendish in 1947. And June Broomhead is very easy to spot. Yeah, in a group of more than 100 men in suits and ties, she's one of just four women. That's less than 4% women representation. Yeah, very representative of the time, really. But did you know that the laboratory was not initially open to women? Later in his professorship, Clark Maxwell consented allowing women to study in the Cavendish, but only during the long summer holiday when he was away in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, women's underrepresentation in science is an ongoing issue, but fortunately, some progress has been made since 1947. Um, in 2019, for instance, 29% of Cavendish staff and 24% of its students were women. Uh, but we still have a long way to go. A long way, yes. <laughs> Going back to this black and white photo, a handful of the men sitting there won Nobel Prizes. Two of them, James Watson, Francis Crick, became household names after the discovery of the double helix structure of DNA. Broomhead's key role in this particular discovery, on the other hand, has pretty much been left aside. Vanessa, can you tell us a bit more about June's biography? Sure. So June, June discovered physics during her school years and soon went up to Cambridge on a full scholarship. She was the first from her school to attend the university. It's worth noting that she completed her undergraduate studies at Newnham's College in 1944, but it would be 50 years before she was granted her BA. 50 years? Why so? Well, at the time, Cambridge did not give women undergraduate degrees. This would change only in 1948. Oh, I see. And uh, what did she work on in Cambridge? So while in Cambridge, she discovered the work of Lawrence Bragg on X-ray crystallography at the Cavendish and went on to pursue a PhD in the department. So using this X-ray crystallography technique, she worked out the physical structures of adenine and guanine, two chemical compounds known as purines, which are the largest and most complex of the four nucleic acids that make up DNA. That structural information proved to be essential for the later discovery of the zipper-like structure of DNA's double helix. In fact, it was through reading June's PhD thesis that Watson and Crick first realized how DNA is structured. They saw how she discovered that there was a regular pattern of hydrogen bond between complementary nuclear bases, and scientists immediately realized this could be the key to solving a problem. Yeah, her discovery really sounds like a key piece of the puzzle. But uh, is there no mention of her contribution in the famous Watson and Crick Nature Letter of uh, 1953? No, that's right, no mention at all. But her name is present in the longer paper published in Proceedings of the Royal Society the following year. So, after her successful defense of her doctorate in 1950, June moved to Oxford to work with Dorothy Hodgkins on vitamin B12. 
In 51, she moved to Ottawa with her Canadian husband, George Lindsay, who had also studied for a PhD in physics at Cambridge. So it seems like who studies together stays together. Yeah. Uh, what did she do in Canada? She took up a postdoctoral position at the National Research Council of Canada and identified the crystal structure of codeine. Oh, wow. Yet another important discovery. Indeed. Then she moved with her husband to Montreal and retired following the birth of their two children. But when she retired, she had already a very impressive list of research achievements, and that in only, what, less than a decade. It is sad that none of her accomplishments have been widely recognized in her lifetime. Yes, she died last year in Ottawa at the grand age of 99. So this year, 2022, marks the centenary of her birth. Well, I think it's pretty clear that June was a brilliant scientist who played a crucial role in one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century. And uh, while her contemporary at Cambridge, Rosalind Franklin, has now been recognized for contributions to the discovery of DNA with uh, plaques and buildings and prices named after her, June Broomhead has not. We hope that giving her center stage here will be a helpful start giving her this long overdue recognition. Absolutely. We've put a link to the original article that this is based on in the show notes. We really encourage you to go and read up more about this extraordinary woman and unsung hero of modern science. Hey, well, welcome back. We're here with Tom, where we'll be talking a little bit more about uh, what he gets up to with his research group nowadays. So you talked a little bit about being a group technician. Uh, I wonder if you want to delve in a bit more about the, the sort of differences there. You, know, you said it's more sort of team-based and you, you have uh, sort of projects that you're actually involved in the design of as opposed to just being given things. I mean, is there a sort of a particularly interesting project you've involved in? You mentioned the very intricate sample holder that was used for one experiment after you spending months getting it to work. Yeah. But I mean, is there anything you particularly enjoyed? Um, there's been a few projects that I've quite enjoyed. Um, and then there's also quite... Quite a lot of tedious ones. Um, <laughs> some of the tedious ones are sort of making shielding for around your optical tables. You know, you can spend weeks just cutting up bits of sheet metal, <laughs> painting them to guard everyone from the lasers because obviously you don't really want to be walking into some of the lasers. <laughs> what, nope. what they're about. Um, so although it's tedious, it's also very necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but then some of the more interesting ones, um, like we've made a sealed box to go onto an optical table so that they can fill that sealed box with nitrogen so it's a nitrogen atmosphere um, they can do their experiments in that whilst putting using their lasers um, so that was interesting and then we also had to modify that so that eventually they could drop a cross that into it as well um, so it's sort of like um, you're constantly having to change what you're doing um, and that gives you an idea of not fixing anything too well because <laughs> the amount of times you have to go back and either they've done what they want to do and then you have to remove it or you have to modify it and then sometimes you'll go down and think bloody hell, I always put about 50 screws in this <laughs> oh wait that's me so a lot of time it's just finding that do it as good as possible without going overkill oh yeah um so that's quite good um and then I think one of the projects what they're doing at the minute which is quite interesting to me but again like I said it's going over my head is I believe that they're working on flexible solar panels. Yeah. So that's me. It's quite interesting seeing now where we're going with electric and electric cars and that sort of thing. Seeing what we could possibly do with flexible solar panels is really quite interesting to me at the minute. Yeah. 
And how sort of, I mean, you mentioned obviously this sort of getting into in the nitty gritty of the science is a bit beyond you and beyond me as well, I have to say. I, <laughs> yeah, I do outreach and so just talk to kids about physics in general. So, uh, yeah, it's quite amazing seeing what they get up to. But um, yeah, if you, do you get a sort of overall view of what the research is doing, where it's heading, sort of where the group's going? Is, uh, do you feel sort of part of that as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, you get a overall feel one when they're coming to you and sort of explaining in layman's terms what they want um, but also when you've made the part and they've gone away and they've done research come back to you and then telling you how it's worked and that they've got the results um, really gives you that extra bit of connection to the group and the research thinking oh wow like that little bit what I've done has actually produced so much sort of research and um, give them the results what they need um, you don't quite understand sometimes how big of a cog you are um, obviously without the help from myself and other technicians about the researchers probably wouldn't be able to get what they want um, but yeah I suppose you don't really sort of understand that until you start getting their feedback so it's quite nice. Mm -hmm. Do you think that something I mean the work that you do is so crucial for experiments to run right anyone who's ever work with broken equipment no like it just doesn't work right you can't do your job so do you think there's enough visualization of the work that you do do you think that the i guess the researchers in your group you've said that you receive that positive feedback but as a whole within let's say the university or in research as a whole um do you think there's enough appreciation of the work that goes on behind the scenes because you might not necessarily end up in the papers or like when when the general public thinks about scientists and what scientists need to get their job done they don't always think of the technicians do you think more needs to be done to visualize that um yes and no um i think the researchers here understand how much they obviously need people like myself but as i was said before i didn't quite realize how much i contributed to the work mm -hmm. um and that was purely because as you said you're not mentioned in papers or anything like that so when you're hear about the research going on. Um, as an outsider, you don't think about a technician behind the scenes making all these tiny little things what they want um, and obviously maintaining the equipment. Um, if if I'm not around, so when I'm on holiday or something like that, if something goes wrong, they have to wait either until I'm back or send off the part to a company. Um, as I was saying, simple things like the vacuum pumps, um, fixing and maintaining them, I can most of the time get something like that up and running again within a couple of days and then they're back to where they want to be. If they had to send it off to outside to get fixed, obviously you're probably looking at a few months mm -hmm. um, just because by the time you send it off, they've got the part, cleaned it all up, fixed it and then sent it back. You're already looking at a week or so there. So um, keeping them being able to do their research obviously is quite vital for them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite the history of it as well. I know the uh, third chemistry professor, Jojo Thompson, who famously discovered the electron, one of the most fundamental particles. Uh, he actually didn't do any of his own experiments. He was too clumsy. He had a, a personal technician who actually did all the experimentation for him. So he uh, just did the thinking? That, yeah, he did the thinking. The... <laughs> and uh, and he, he obviously uh, yeah, didn't trust his hands enough, but trusted uh, Ebony's Reveridge, I think his name was, but it was his uh, technician there. And looking at some of the kit that the uh, scientists made themselves back in those days, it's all sort of uh, string and sealing wax and uh, a bit terrifying and certainly wouldn't pass any sort of health and safety things nowadays. <laughs> and then you've got a lovely workshop produced bit of kit next to it. The cloud chamber is a good example if, you're, mm. if you've not seen that. 
But yeah. So your role involves working with things that uh, typically don't work and uh, doing a lot of problem solving. And I think the way you go about it would be incredibly helpful for researchers who also have to work with the unknown and the unpredictable. What would you say uh, your advice is for people working in that sort of environment where you're constantly dealing with you know, the unexpected and things going wrong in new and exciting ways? Um, my advice would probably be a bit of advice what my granddad gave me, which is hurry slowly. Um, <laughs> and what he means by that is... The first solution what you come up with may not be the best or the quickest. Um, if you actually sit down and think about the problem um, and look at multiple solutions, a lot of times you'll come up with a better solution and which will work either faster or the first time, rather than your first solution, what you come up with, if you get too fixated on that, you can spend so much tr time trying to make that work rather than actually um, regrouping and thinking about a different solution what will work. So hurry slowly is a very good <laughs> bit of advice what he gave me. Yeah, it sounds like you have to do a lot of different prioritizing when you're solving so many problems. I mean, you must get, you know, things that you're working on and then some emergency will happen or, I don't know, something bigger and worse will happen that you need to tend to. How do you manage that kind of on-the-go aspect of your job? Um, so that's something what has just taken a lot of time to get used to. Um, so it's actually something what's happened... Today, in oh. <laughs> I had all intentions of going to a workshop and making another sample holder for a student, and one of the plasma rashes is broken. Um, luckily, it's a it's got the same symptoms as what's happened before, mm. but obviously that's more important than the job what I'm doing at the minute. So I'm having to put that to the side, go and work on that, and then I'll come back to it. But it's, um, it's trying to understand what the most urgent job is at the time. Um, and obviously understanding where you are on certain jobs. Um, if something pops up which is super urgent, but I've only got an hour or so's work on something else, um, the hour or so what I'm not spending on that job to get this other job done just makes more sense mm -hmm. um, so that you're not leaving either a machine taken up or something like that. But being able to actually look at what's the most important job at the time um, has taken a lot of getting used to. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the kind of thing, I guess, even as a researcher or just anyone going through life, I guess you have to learn <laughs> how to prioritize your time and, and manage yourself. And also one of the things that as a group technician you were mentioning is that you have this kind of freedom to do. I mean, obviously you have to do the, the jobs that you're told, but you have your freedom to arrange your day and your kind of, uh, job the way that you want to. Um, and what has it been like to kind of develop that independence, that which is very different from the way that you were describing the workshop where you just get given things to do and kind of continuing on that uh, yeah so self-managing my day um, like I said to start off with was very strange to me because you used to sort of this is what you're doing today and that's that mm -hmm. um, and then when I changed to start working for a group finding that the researchers come to me and they'll sort of ask me to do things and then all of a sudden you've got a pile of jobs but having to actually look through that and prioritise what's urgent what's not um, yeah that's a different step because obviously everyone believes that their work is the most important <laughs> um, and a lot of time you upset people by not getting it done quite as soon as they want but having to sit down and explain to people you know this is what I'm doing um, it's just a different part of a job what you're not quite used to being in the workshop and things like that but um, being able to sit down and speak to people and sort of understand whether what they're doing is super, super urgent in that you have to put down the other jobs, what you're doing, 
to look at what they're doing. Um, yeah, it's quite nice in a way as well because you're speaking to the people and you get to understand a little bit more about their work when you're actually asking them how urgent it is. Um, speaking to them a lot of times, they'll sort of start talking to you and you can understand just from the conversation, right, well, you can wait a few days. <laughs> I'll push that to the side and then I'll sort of get these other jobs done. But you can give them a time frame and a lot of times the solution is sorted out just through a conversation. Mm-hmm. People often think of science research as a constant stream of progress where new experiments are developed all the time. But in our earlier chat, you mentioned this wasn't your experience. You've been part of the group for a long time. You've seen things come and go. Is there something you sort of noticed in terms of experiments and what the researchers, what sort of equipment and what sort of techniques the researchers are using? Um, so as a technician, I'd describe science as almost a fashion <laughs> in that fashions come and fashions go. Um, at the minute, we seem to be doing a lot of stuff with lasers and magnets and glove boxes. Um, but obviously, that's the fashion at the minute. That might change and I'll go to something else. But um, Roger, my predecessor, who I've taken over, um, he sort of said, you know, keep as many notes as you can because a lot of the time, what you're working on now, that, will sort of, that fashion will go away. Um, but then in five, ten years' time, um, sometimes that'll come back and then you can look back at the work what you've done previously and although it's not going to be exactly the same because obviously that's been researched and things have moved on but the fundamentals of what they're doing are often quite similar so you can learn from what mistakes were made in the past to sort of avoid that and progress a bit quicker. Okay, so it's not just taking an old bit of equipment out from the back of the cupboard, dusting it off and telling them it's brand new. <laughs> no, no, no. No, so it's more... When you speak to people and they're sort of telling you how they want to measure their experiments, you can sort of think, oh, I've done something very similar to that a few years ago. And then you look through what work you've been doing. Um, and then you can see, oh, that was quite similar to that. However, they're wanting to go slightly in a different direction. Um, and then from that, you can modify either an old bit of equipment if you need to. Um, because obviously some of the work, what they're doing super urgent um some of the researchers are only here for three years or something and some of the times they've come up with this amazing discovery but (laughs) in their last year so they've only got a year to sort of get the results what they need um so sometimes you do have to modify old bits of equipment or old experiments um but there's quite a lot of times where you are designing something from new um but being able to skip a few steps of what designs did and didn't work is always <laughs> quite nice. Yeah, nice. You mentioned Roger briefly there as the uh, previous technician. Was there much of a crossover between the two of you, or did he just sort of leave you a sheet of paper on the desk and uh, and wish you luck on his way out? Um, yeah, no, so Roger Beadle, I have a lot of time for him. Um, he obviously helped me out quite a lot with um, getting into the group, but also um, he had a bit of planning with Henning, the head of OE, to be able to spend two years with me before he left. So we actually had two years of working together. Um, and he's the person what basically showed me how to work on the optical tables safely, um, how to service vacuum pumps, um, what sort of things to look for within a glove box when things start going wrong. What Obviously, there's a few different things what can go wrong with a glove box, but basically what symptoms, where to look at the uh, problems. Um, so having two years of him was 
absolutely amazing um, because I believe he was working for the group for over 40 years for the oh, same wow. group. So You knew he, everything. Yeah, he, basically what he didn't know wasn't worth knowing. Um, <laughs> but I believe he used to work for OE when they used to be in the Mott building and then he moved them into the MRC building. So he's been with the group for quite a while. So if he hasn't seen it, it probably wasn't going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously the two years what I spent with him was very vital to me being able to progress in my job as quick as I did um, but two years obviously wasn't enough um, <laughs> there's so much what he still has in his head um, what sometimes I'll give him a call um, I'm yeah. still in contact with oh, him. Um, so sometimes I'll give him a call if I've got a certain <laughs> problem what I think oh, I just can't get my head around it but I'm sure Roger would know so I'll give him a call and <laughs> As it is, most of the time he does know the answers. Right, so it's, it's quite nice. So he remembers that very important looking bolt that's a bit mysterious to so exactly what it does. Yeah, it? strangely <laughs> enough, he has got a very good memory. Um, there's a lot of times when you go to a bit of equipment and you'll see there's either a certain spanner what you need is because he's made a bit of equipment. Um, but in doing so, he's had to make um, special tools to maintain that equipment. Um, and then when you go to surface it, now that he's gone, um, you sort of look and think, well, this wasn't made outside, so it was made in here, and I can't get this part off because there's a certain tool I need, but I can't find what tool that is online to buy. And that's purely because Roger made the part, Roger made the equipment, he made the tool, and he knows exactly what drawer that tool <laughs> is in. So that's amazing, and it's really good that they're keeping. Yeah, that forty years of experience is invaluable, isn't it? And the fact that they recognised it enough to make sure that you had a chance to uh, yeah, to learn from him and for him to pass some of that knowledge on. Is, yeah, yeah, it's really good. And what's it like working as part of that really long legacy of not just Roger, but also your grandfather and all the people that have probably kept this place going for so many, so many years? Um, so it's different in the legacy of my grandfather because a lot of people, I try not to say that my grandfather worked here, um, purely because you either get involved in a lot of stories or, uh, <laughs> or like I said, there's a bit of pressure there. They'll sort of say, oh, you, so you must so you know, know about this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> However, a lot of times I don't. Um, and then the legacy of Roger is different in that I felt quite a lot of pressure coming into the group because obviously 40 years of experience is some very big boots to fill. Mm -hmm. um, but learning that people don't expect you to know everything straight away um, really took that pressure away. Um, and one of Roger's bits of advice was, don't lie to people, don't pretend to know that you <laughs> do know. You know, you can say to them, obviously, I don't know about this, but I'll go away and I'll either research it or I'll ask questions to certain people to find out the answer and then come back to them then. Mm -hmm. um, not trying to sort of cheat your way, your way through it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> really helps out. Mm-hmm. That's, a, I think, an important lesson for everyone in general. Especially if you're dealing with high-powered lasers. It's very good yeah. not to bluff around those. Yeah, definitely <laughs> not. Definitely. So we'll shortly be moving to Cavendish 3, which is a much nicer building just over the road. Do you think that'll change your role much, or will it just be a sort of nicer, uh, nicer workshop to work in? Um, for the first year or two, my role will change in that I'm going to be extremely busy. Um, <laughs> because from what I believe, we're having a company move all the equipment over there. However, getting the equipment back up and running is a completely different story. So there's going to be a lot of equipment which is moved over there, which then needs assembling again and um, making it work again. But a lot of times the equipment what is here has been there for so long that simply moving it and plugging it back in 
<laughs> doesn't always work. So there's going to be a lot of uh, problem solving that I can see. Um, and then after that, um, once we do have everything up and running, um, I believe that a lot of the stuff there is shared facilities. So I think that my role could change um, quite a bit in that. The work what I do at the minute is purely for OE and um, partly for microelectronics as well. Um, but obviously if everything's shared, um, I think it's going to be quite difficult to decipher who I'm working for at times um, mm. and what researchers come to me for a, a problem. Sometimes at the minute, obviously, if I go to a room and it's not in a certain building what I'm working, <laughs> I know that I'm not working for my group. Um, whereas if everything's shared and I'm having multiple different researchers come to me for problems, um, being able to decipher what work I actually need to do and what work technically I Somebody don't. else should be doing. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I think that'll be a bit difficult to start off with um, because obviously you don't want to be asking someone as soon as they come to you for a job, oh, who's your group sort of thing, who's your mm -hmm. PI? Um, it just seems a bit um, odd to be asking that question before you start working for someone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of change when we get over there. Um, a lot of it for the good because... Like I said, it's a nice shiny new building. <laughs> Much less asbestos as well. Yep. Yes, definitely. Um, having to fix things to the walls isn't always easy uh, where we are now. Um, you have to ask maintenance to come over and drill the hole or find out whether there is asbestos there. And then if there is, then they have to get the asbestos people in to fix it. And obviously, it's a massive cost. And a lot of time, we just avoid doing it just because oh, yeah. um, having the cost and the time of having... The special asbestos guys come in um, they don't have to close the lab so it's not quite as easy as just attaching something to a wall to fix it down <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so being able to go over there and basically having drill a whole room yeah. is being able to <laughs> drill and do what i want with um, that'd be quite nice so you're looking forward to it then yeah <laughs> so i guess what we've learned today is that when things go wrong we shouldn't panic we should just try to think of what to do next Indeed. And not take your first solution as being the best yeah. one, sitting and thinking about it. Definitely. Yourself. And also, um, the thing what I've seen over the years of working for the group is it's always quite nice if the researchers don't have a go first. <laughs> <laughs> because there's been right. quite a lot of times when the equipment's broken, um, and sometimes that can be quite a simple fix. But when um, someone has a go at it, what hasn't seen the equipment before, mm -hmm. or doesn't quite know the solution, um, sometimes there's about 10 different problems what you have to then fix after that because you're having to go back and rewind like undo what's, what was done yeah. Yeah. so I guess accepting when like you need understanding when you need to ask for help yeah, yeah, not being afraid to ask for help yeah definitely <laughs> well thank you very much for your time today Tom it's been fascinating and uh, yeah leave you with that thank you very much Thanks to our guest Tom Sharp and to our producer Chris for this episode. The news today were brought to you by Vanessa and Paolo. If you want to learn more about what's been discussed in this episode or want to join us or study with us here in the Cavendish, go to cavendish.cam.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. We would love to put your questions to our team of physicists. Send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag hashtag people doing physics. You can also email us at podcast at phy.cam.ac.uk. We'll be back next month. Bye.